Section 27 of The Romance of Modern Mechanism. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Andy Glover. The Romance of Modern Mechanism by Archibald Williams. Chapter 24 Agricultural Machinery. Agriculture is at once the oldest and most important of all national industries. Man, being a graminivorous animal, witness his molar or grinding double teeth, has, since the earliest times, been obliged to observe the seasons, planting his crops when the ground is moist, and reaping them when the weather is warm and dry. Apart from the nomad races of the deserts and steppes, who find their chief subsistence in the products of the date-palm and of their flocks and herds. All nations cultivate a large portion of the country which they inhabit. Ancient monuments, the oldest inscriptions and writings, bear witness to the prime importance of the plough and reaping-hook, and it may be reasonably assumed that the progress of civilization is proved by the increased use of cereal foods and better methods of garnering and preparing them. For thousands of years the sickle, which Greek and Roman artists placed in the hands of their goddess of the harvest, and the rude plough, consisting of, perhaps, only a crooked bough with a pointed end, were practically the only implements known to the husbandman besides his spade and mattock. Where labor is abundant and each householder has time to cultivate the little plot which suffices for the maintenance of his own family, and while there is little inducement to take part in other than agricultural industries, tedious and time-wasting methods have held their own. But in highly civilized communities, carrying on manufactures of all sorts, it is difficult for the farmer to secure an abundance of human help and yet it is recognized that a speedy preparation and sowing of the land, and a prompt gathering and threshing of the harvest, is all in favor of producing a successful and well-conditioned crop. In England, eighty years ago, three men lived in the country for everyone who lived in the town. Now the proportion has been reversed, and that not in the British Isles alone. The world does not mean to starve but civilization demands that as few people as possible should be devoted to procuring the staff of life for both man and beast. We should reasonably expect, therefore, that the immense advance made in mechanical science during the last century should have left a deep mark on agricultural appliances. Such an expectation is more than justified, for are there not many among us who have seen the sickle and the flail at work, where now the self-binder and threshing-machine perform the same duties in a fraction of the time formerly required? The plowman, plodding sturdily down the furrow behind his clever team, is indeed still a common sight. But in the tilling season, do we not hear the snort of the steam-engine, as its steel rope tears a six-furrow plow through the mellow earth? When the harvest comes, we realize even more clearly how largely machinery has supplanted man. 
While in the processes of separating the grain from its straw, the human element plays an even smaller part. It would not be too much to say that, were we to revert next year to the practices of our grandfathers, we should starve in the year following. This chapter will be confined to a consideration of machinery operated by horse, steam, or other power, which falls under four main headings, plows, drills, reapers, and threshers. Plows The firm of Messrs. John Fowler and Company, of Leeds, is most intimately connected with the introduction of the steam plow and cultivator. Their first type of outfit included one engine only, the traversing of the plow across the field being effected by means of cables passing round a pulley on a low four-wheeled truck moved along the opposite edge of the field by ropes dragging on an anchor. Another method was to have the engine stationary at one corner of the field and an anchor at each of the three other corners the two at the ends of the furrow being moved for every journey of the plow. In or about the year 1865, this arrangement succumbed to the simple and, as it now seems to us, obvious improvement of introducing a second engine to progress vis-a-vis -vis with the first and do its share of the pulling. The modern eight-furrow steam plow will turn ten acres a day quite easily at a much lower cost than that of horse labor. For tearing up land after a crop, cultivators are sometimes used. They have arrowhead-shaped coulters, which cut very deep and bring large quantities of fresh earth to the surface. The ground is now pulverized by harrows of various shapes. According to the nature of the crop to be sown, English farmers generally employ the spike harrow, but Yankee agriculturists make great use of the spring-tooth form, which may be best described as an arrangement of very strong springs, much resembling in outline the springs of house-bells. The shorter arm is attached to the frame, while the longer and pointed arm tears the earth. Drills and Cedars in highly civilized countries, the man carrying a basket from which he flings seeds broadcast is a very rare sight indeed. The primitive method may have been effective. A good sower could cover an acre evenly with half a pint of turnip seed, but very slow. We now use a long bin mounted on wheels, which revolves discs inside the bin, furnished with tiny spoons round the periphery to scoop small quantities of seed into tubes terminating in a coulter. The farmer is thus certain of having evenly planted and parallel rows of grain, which in the early spring, when the sprouting begins, make so pleasant an addition to the landscape. The corn, or maize crop of the United States, is so important that it demands special sowing machinery which plants single grains at intervals of about 18 inches. A somewhat similar device is used for planting potatoes. Passing over the weeding machines, which offer no features of particular interest, we come to the reaping machines, on which a vast amount of ingenuity has been expended. At the beginning of the 19th century, 
the Royal Agricultural Society of Great Britain, offered a prize for the introduction of a really useful machine which should replace the scythe and sickle. Several machines were brought out, but they did not prove practical enough to attract much attention. Cyrus H. McCormick invented in 1831 the reaper, which, with very many improvements added, is today employed in all parts of the world. The most noticeable point of this machine was the bar furnished with a row of triangular blades, which passed very rapidly to and fro through slots in an equal number of sharp steel points, against which they cut the grain. The to-and-fro action of the cutter blade was produced by a connecting rod working on a crank rotated by the wheels carrying the machine. The first McCormick Reaper did wonders on a Virginian farm. Other inventors were stimulated, and in 1833 there appeared the Hussey Reaper, built on somewhat similar lines. For twelve years or so, these two machines competed against one another all over the United States, and then McCormick added a raker attachment, which, when sufficient grain had accumulated on the platform, enabled a second man on the machine to sweep it off, to be tied up into a sheaf. At the Great Exhibition held in London in 1851, the judges awarded a special medal to the inventor, reporting that the whole expense of the exhibition would have been well recouped if only the reaper were introduced into England. From France, McCormick received the decoration of the Legion of Honor, for having done more for the cause of agriculture than any man then living. It would be reasonable to expect that, after this public recognition, the mechanical reaper would have been immediately valued at its true worth. Yet no man had more difficulty in introducing his machines than the pioneer inventor of agricultural implements. Farmers everywhere were slow to accept it, and manufacturers were unwilling to undertake its manufacture. Even after the value of the machine had been demonstrated, Everyone seemed to fear that it would break down on rocky and uneven fields, and the inventor had to demonstrate in person to the farmers the practicability of the reapers, and then even guarantee them before the money could be obtained. Through all these trying discouragements, the persistent inventor passed before he saw any reward for the work that he had spent half a lifetime in perfecting. The ultimate triumph of the inventor may be sufficient reward for his labors and discouragements, but those who would begrudge him the wealth that he subsequently made from his invention should consider some of the difficulties and obstacles he had to overcome in the beginning. In 1858, an attachment was fitted to replace the second passenger on the machine. Four men followed behind, to tie up the grain as it was shot off the machine. Inventors tried to abolish the need for these extra hands by means of a self-binding device. A practical method, employing wire, appeared in 1860, but so great was the trouble caused by stray pieces of the wire getting into threshing and other machinery through which the grain subsequently passed 
that farmers went back to handwork until the Appleby patent of 1873 replaced wire by twine. Words alone would convey little idea of how the corn is collected and encircled with twine, how the knot is tied by an ingenious shuttle mechanism, and how it is thrown out into a set of arms which collect sufficient sheaves to form a stook before it lets them fall. So we would advise our readers to take the next chance of examining a modern self-binder, and to persuade the man in charge to give as lucid an explanation as he can of the way in which things are done. Popular prejudice having once been conquered, the success of the reapers was assured. The year 1870 saw 60,000 in use. By 1885, the output had increased to 250,000, and today the manufacture of agricultural labor-saving machines gives employment to over 200,000 people, an equal number being occupied in their transport and sale in all parts of the globe. In California, perhaps more than in any other country, power agricultural machinery is seen at its best. Great traction engines here take the place of human labor to an extraordinary extent. The largest, of 50 horsepower and upwards, with driving wheels 60 inches in diameter and flanges of generous width, travel over the uneven surface of the grain fields, crossing ditches and low places, and descending the sides of steep hills, with as much apparent ease as a locomotive rolls along its steel rails. Such powerful traction engines, or automobiles as they are commonly called by the American farmers, are capable of dragging behind them sixteen ten-inch plows, four six-foot harrows, and a drill and seeder. The land is thus plowed, drilled, and seeded all at one time. From fifty to seventy-five acres of virgin soil can thus be plowed and planted in a single day. When the harvest comes, the engines are again brought into service, and the fields that would ordinarily defy the best efforts of an army of workmen are garnered quickly and easily. The giant harvester is hitched to the traction engine in place of the plows and harrows, and cuts, binds, and stacks the golden wheat from seventy-five acres in a single day. The cutters are twenty-six feet wide and they make a clear swath across the field. Some of them thresh, clean, and sack the wheat as fast as it is cut and bound. Other traction engines follow to gather up the sacked wheat, and whole trainloads of it thus move across the field, to the granaries or railways of the seaboard or interior. For dead-ripe crops, the header is often used in California, Instead of being pulled, it is pushed by mules, and merely cuts off the heads, leaving the straw to be trampled down by the animals, since it has no value. Swaths as wide as fifty feet are thus treated, the grain being threshed out while the machine moves. One of the most beautiful, and at the same time useful, crops in the world is that of maize, which feeds not only vast numbers of human beings, but also countless flocks and herds, the latter eating the green stalks 
as well as the ripened grain. The United States alone produced no less than 2,523,648,312 bushels of this cereal in 1902, as against 987 million bushels of wheat and 670 million bushels of barley. Now, maize has a very tough stalk, often ten feet high, and an inch thick, which cannot be cut with the ease of wheat or barley, so a special machine has been devised to handle it. The row of corn is picked up, if fallen, by chains furnished with projecting spikes, working at an angle to the perpendicular, so as to lift and simultaneously pull back the stalks which pass into a horizontal V-shaped frame. This has a broad opening in front, but narrows towards its rear end, where stationary sickles fixed on either side give the stalk a drawing cut before it reaches the single knife moving to right and left in the angle of the V, which severs the stalk completely. The McCormick machine gathers the corn in vertical bundles and ties them up ready for the shockers. Threshing Machines In principle, these are simple enough. The straw and grain is fed into a slot and pulled down between a toothed rotating drum and a fixed toothed concave. These tear out the grain from the ear. The former falls into the hopper of a winnowing and riddling machine, which clears it from dust and husks and allows it to pass to a hopper. An endless chain of buckets carries it to the delivery bins, holding just one sack full each, which, when full, discharge the grain through spouts into the receptacles waiting below their mouths. An automatic counter records the number of sackfuls of corn that have been discharged, so that dishonesty on the part of employees becomes practically an impossibility. While the grain is thus treated, oscillating rakes have arranged the straw and shaken it out behind in a form convenient for binding, and the chaff is passed to its proper heap, to be used as fuel for the engine or as food for cattle. Petrol-Driven Field Machinery On water, rail, and road, the petrol engine has entered into rivalry with steam, very successfully too and now it bids fair to challenge both steam engine and horse as the motive power for agricultural operations. Probably the best-known English petrol-driven farmer's help is that made by Mr. Dan Albin of Biggleswade, who in past times did much to introduce the safety bicycle to the public. The Ival motor is not beautiful to look upon. Its sides are slab, its outlines rather suggestive of an inverted punt. But it is a willing and powerful worker, requires no feeding in the early hours of the morning, no careful brush down after the day's work, no halts to ease wearied muscles. In one tank is petrol, in another, lubricating oil, in a third, water, to keep the cylinders cool. A double-cylinder motor of 18 horsepower transmits its energy through a large clutch and train of cogs to the road wheels, made extra wide and well corrugated, 
so that they shall not sink into soft ground or slip on hard. There is a broad pulley wheel peeping out from one side of the machine, which is ready to drive chaff cutters or threshers, pump, grind corn, or turn a dynamo at a moment's notice. Hitch the idle onto a couple of reapers or a three-furrow plow, and it soon shows its superiority to man's friend. Here are some records. Eleven acres, one rood, thirteen poles of wet loam land plowed in seventeen and a half hours, at a cost per acre of five shillings. Nineteen acres of wheat reaped and bound in ten hours, at a cost of one shilling nine pence per acre. Fifteen acres, three roods of heavy grass, cut in three and a half hours, cost one shilling per acre. With horses, the average cost of plowing is about ten shillings an acre, of reaping five shillings, so that the motor does at least twice the work for the same money. We may quote a paragraph from the pen of Home Counties, a well-known and perspicacious writer on agricultural topics. It is because motor farming is likely to result in a more thorough cultivation of the land and a more skillful and more enlightened practice of agriculture, and not in a further extension of those deplorable land-scratching and acre-grasping methods of which so many pitiful examples may be seen on our clay soils, that its beginnings are being sympathetically watched by many people who have the best interests of the rural districts and the prosperity of agriculture at heart. Will our farmers give the same welcome to the agricultural motor that was formerly accorded to the mechanical reaper? Prophecy is risky, but if, before a decade has elapsed, the horse has not been largely replaced by petrol on large farms and light land, the rider of these lines will be much surprised. Electrical Farming Machinery In France, Germany, Austria, and the United States, the electric motor has been turned to agricultural uses. Where water power is available, it is peculiarly suitable for stationary work, such as threshing, chaff cutting, root slicing, grinding, etc. The current can be easily distributed all over a large farm and harnessed to portable motors. Even plowing has been done with electricity, the energy being derived either from a steam engine placed nearby or from an overhead supply passing to the plow through trolley arms similar to those used on electric trams. The great advances made recently in electrical power transmission and in the efficiency of the electric motor bring the day in sight when on large properties the fields will be girt about by cables and poles as permanent fixtures. All the usual agricultural operations of plowing, drilling, and reaping will then be independent of horses or of steam engines panting laboriously on the headlands. In fact, the experiment has been tried with success in the United States. Whichever way we look, giant steam is bowing before a superior power. End of section 27